Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50% to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com slash style for free shipping and 365-day returns. Hello, everyone, and welcome to a new criminal case. In 1991, Shonda Scherer, a young 12-year-old preteen, left the state of Kentucky, her birthplace, to move to Indiana with her mother. This high-spirited, kind, and happy-go-lucky young girl captured everyone's attention, both boys and girls, at her school. Soon, however, she also triggered the jealousy of Melinda Loveless, a high school student of 16, and her gang of friends. Drawn into an unhealthy lesbian love triangle, young Shonda was not aware of the sordid plan that was unfolding behind her back, a plan that would soon be executed with unusual cruelty. In an atmosphere charged with murderous jealousy and a romantic rivalry between teenagers, the outcome would prove to be fatal. Join us today for our latest criminal case, which takes a look at one of the worst homicides ever committed by children in the small town of America in the early 90s. It should be noted, however, that some of the details might be shocking and especially traumatic for some listeners. Nevertheless, our job is to report the facts as faithfully as possible and as they occurred, and also to put them in a temporal and cultural context. This podcast is not for the faint of heart, and so listeners' discretion is advised. A new start, Pineville, Kentucky, June 1991. Summer vacation makes the job of changing schools a whole lot easier. No one has to say goodbyes to teachers or other students. That's what Shonda thought as she took the last box containing her Barbies down to the lobby to be packed away with the rest of her things. Mama obviously had no luck with men. First Papa, then Jim, when divorced, was overcome with restlessness and absolutely had to have a change of scenery, wardrobe, car, and this time a change of state too. Why exactly had she specifically chosen Indiana? Apparently the rents were cheaper there and so was the cost of living. But as a 12-year-old, Shonda knew that what her mother really wanted was to put as much distance as possible between her and the father that she loved. In the little girl's imagination, Indiana looked like a bleak wasteland populated by delusional evangelists, like the one she had often seen on television, and where schools still separated white children from children of color. The seven-and-a-half-hour trip to New Albany, where mother and daughter planned to move, was made entirely by car. Shonda left her father Stephen behind in Kentucky, but she still hoped to see him again as soon as possible. It was clear that of the two parents, he was undoubtedly her favorite even though she adored her mother. As their only child, she was educated in a protective cocoon and had always got whatever she wanted. Ever since Stephen Scherer separated from his wife and daughter, his tender devotion to her only doubled. Whenever she came to stay with him every second week in their shared custody agreement, he would take her out, bring her whatever she wanted, 
buy her whatever she wanted, and even comply with her every whim. Most of all, he gave her a lot of freedom. She could leave the TV on all night if she felt like it or even have dinner in front of the TV without worrying about tidying up afterwards. Shonda was also the splitting image of Stephen. They both had the same red hair, the same kind and gentle look, and the same effervescence and typical French smile. Shonda Renee Scherer was born at the Pineville Community Hospital in Kentucky on June 6, 1979. As a child, Shonda was educated at the St. Paul Catholic School, where she excelled at several different sports, including volleyball, softball, swimming, and table tennis. She was an extrovert child who was full of life and who had no trouble making friends, even if sometimes she could be very selfish. In the end, the move to Indiana proved to be not as bad as she feared. Shonda and her mother eventually even came to realize the new Albany. Their new hometown was not that different from Louisville. They both had the same white wood houses, the same red brick buildings with Victorian chimneys, the same cars, and practically the same intrusive neighbors, who arrived at their doorstep one by one with the cake in the American tradition of welcoming a new neighbor. Shonda was almost amused as she read the local church notice typed in word, printed in color, and hung in the bulletin board with thumb tracks committee meeting to organize a rummage sale in support of drug addicts in Attica. Jesus and the Apostles, a presentation by Mrs. Blair with Mrs. B. White on the organ. Cookie baking workshop for beginners, sales on site, funds go directly to the association of the former alcoholics of Dearborn. Organist Mrs. B. White is selling a set of 1912 forks and two sets of doilies. Contact us at the following number if interested. Reverend D. Hamilton has decided to ban all alcohol beverage at the next annual fair. Any cinder consumption may only be done upon the presentation of a piece of identification at the stands. And so on and so forth, this was the beginning of life in puritanical America. Welcome to Indiana. The rest of the summer in 1991 was spent furnishing the new house and finding a school for Shonda. Her mother, Jacqueline, then enrolled her at the Hazelhood Junior High a school attended by children from all social and all ethnic backgrounds. The start of the school year in the United States takes place earlier than in Europe, generally starting in at the second half of August. As a 12-year-old, Shonda seemed much older. Her hairstyle, her colorful clothing, in the latest fashion, and her accessories all easily made her appear at least four years older. Hazelwood was one of those schools where the students were permitted to come dressed however they pleased. Every kind of look was permitted, and makeup was popular even among the youngest students in the first year like Shonda. Eventually, she took part in the craze. In the girls' restroom at recess, rhinestone lip gloss, cherry and strawberry-flavored lipstick, shimmering purple and blue eyeshadow and mascara were all passed around, miraculously taken from a pencil case. No way! You've got the latest gloss from the Disney Channel! My dad brought it for me. He is still in Kentucky, and I won't see him anymore for a long time. Well, I wish I didn't have to see mine anymore. Besides, if he saw me wearing makeup like this, for sure he would kill me with his rifle. Are you serious? Yeah, hey, pass me a blush, would you? The start of the new school year went well. With her ever-present smile and mischievous eyes, Shonda soon became popular with everyone. From her very first day at school, she returned home with her Hawaiian Barbie diary filled with telephone numbers, birthday reminders, addresses, and a whole bunch of stickers. 
At Hazelhood, Shonda enrolled in rhythmic dance classes and played piano twice a week during music class. In the halls, everyone noticed, even though she was just one of the hundred students who passed by every day. Was the attention because of her slightly odd-fashioned look, her air of maturity, her dyed hair from her mother's hairdresser, or was it because of her willingness to approach others, to never say no, and to smile at all times? She had also become the teacher's pet, and the one who erased the blackboards, wrote down the day's date, and helped the children with their homework. On a cool October day in 1991, as she was closing her locker after putting her things for the day inside, Shonda came face to face with a tall and slender teenager that she had never seen before. The schoolgirl seemed to be about 15 or 16 years old and not particularly pretty with her white forehead and slick black-brown hair. She was wearing torn jeans that were covered in pins featuring the group the Cocktail Twins. Shonda also noticed that she was wearing a black top that barely covered her flat chest and a golden piercing that hung from her navel. A piercing? She thought to herself, as far back as she could remember, she had only seen them on bearded, hairy bikers who reeked of beer from kilometers away, like the kind of people that her father had once shown her in Nashville, but she'd never seen one on a high school girl. She was truly stunning. Hi, I'm Amanda Hebron, and my name is... The teenager with the piercing smiled sweetly. Shonda, I already know you. Like almost everyone around here, you're very popular. And besides, your name is so unusual, I couldn't forget it even if I wanted to. Shonda was amazed. How could anyone say that she was popular with such an unusual name, whereas when her mother or her father called her with it, it sounded so normal? It was also a compliment. Shonda blushed a bit. Amanda seemed to cover her with her whole shadow and continued to nod her head without taking her eyes off her. She suggested to her that they meet up again after the class of the day at 4 p.m. It was all set. Together they went to the Spears Mall to drink milkshakes. Then Amanda took out her pack of cigarettes and held out one to Shonda, who blushed with confusion and she shook her head no. Do you know what a hookup is? Yeah, I think I heard it in a film. We both need to hook up again. Oh, but sorry, maybe you need to leave a word with your mother first. Not necessarily. My father comes to see me every second week. He never says anything to me. I can do practically anything I want. So we'll see. The smoke exhaled from Amanda's cigarette, entered her nostrils, and her eyes began to sting. Well, you have my telephone number, so we can call each other, promise? Promise. Shonda watched as her new friend walked away, while the image of her majestic piercing still lingered in her mind. Yes, they absolutely had to see each other again. Quickly, a friendship began to develop between Shonda and Amanda to the point where they had become practically inseparable. On the weekends when Stephen specifically made the trip from Kentucky to see her, she rarely stayed with him and always found an excuse to hang out with Amanda. Sometimes, Amanda even came over to the house. They wrote in each other's diaries, gave each other cute nicknames, and once Amanda sent her these lines, written nervously without the usual innocent little hearts. I have to tell you something, but not here, not in a letter. I have to tell you in person. When Shonda called, Amanda told her that it was just a test to see if they were still best friends. In the days that followed, Shonda was shocked and saddened to see Amanda now hanging out with a brunette with long curly hair. She had even seen them kissing behind the intruder's locker. Suddenly, she saw some boys passing by while mocking her. 
The bitches are out at Hazel, guys. We're gonna have to change schools in order to hook up with the girls. Then she saw the intruder give her the finger. As for Amanda, she looked into her eyes for a moment and then turned away as if she had seen something disturbing. Shonda shed tears in her diary that night. Her own sadness shocked and frightened her. She even felt jealous. Not the ordinary kind of jealousy that all girls felt, but rather romantic jealousy that was all-consuming. I'm really mad at you, and you're not my friend anymore. What were you doing with that girl? Why were you kissing her? You like her? Admit it. Is that what you wanted to tell me the other day? Shonda's little world began to fall apart, and with all that negligence that had always characterized her existence, the love affair had been short-lived. The next day, she didn't leave her tear-soaked diary in Amanda's locker. Her former friend continued to ignore her in the hallways with the haughty hair and sometimes the girl with the long brown hair. They sneered as soon as they saw her. She despised her because Amanda seemed to be interested in her. I'm in love, Shonda wrote in her diary that very night. Detention, Hazelwood, November 1991. Shonda knew that she liked girls ever since her first year of high school, but she preferred to keep that fact to herself for fear of being reported to the school administration, which did not tolerate immoral behavior. She was secretly in love with a girl, a blonde by the name Taylor, such a gender-neutral name for a girl who was so feminine. When Taylor discovered Amanda's intentions, she threatened to tell her parents and the school administration. When she first started attending Hazelwood High School, Amanda met Melinda Loveless, who was tall, determined, unscrupulous, and foul-mouthed. She had a long mane of curly black hair that practically covered half her body. It was love at first sight. With her, Amanda could finally live her romance out in the open because Melinda was the kind of girl who wasn't afraid of anyone and had said ideas about everything whereas Amanda tended to procrastinate and consider things. Perhaps it was precisely these major differences that eventually brought them together. But what initially attracted her to Melinda had become a nuisance over time, so much so that she started to find reasons to avoid her. But Melinda Loveless was not the one to give up easily. She made embarrassing jealous scenes and tormented her girlfriend with insults and criticism. And then Shonda and her angelic smile showed up at Hazel just at the time when Amanda and Melinda's relationship was already on the rocks. Amanda was attracted to Shonda. She tried to talk to her and stared at her whenever they met in the halls. To go out with a girl who was little more than a child therefore seemed like an insurmountable obstacle and just as dangerous as all her previous attempts. Jealous and unable to tolerate being dumped, Melinda Loveless found the right time to heckle and harass her ex and the newcomer. The girl from Kentucky, the little peasant with her Minnie Mouse stickers and colorful handmade sweaters. She even started openly mocking Shonda, nicknaming her Ugly Girl and Creepy Clown. Once Shonda had a fight with a boy at school and Amanda, who had ignored her a lot recently, found the perfect opportunity to intervene and come to her defense. As a result, they were both issued a week's detention, which involved staying after school to clean the classrooms. Amanda was delighted. Finally, she was going to be alone with the object of her affection. On the first day of detention, Shonda, who had already been quite angry at her friend's attitude recently, pretended to ignore her. In the empty school without students or staff, their footsteps echoed in the hallways. The next day, Amanda found the strength necessary to declare her love to Shonda. She burst into tears and they both eventually kissed. 
Melinda, however, never let down her guard and learned through one of her friends that the two girls had been issued a week's detention and that every night they were side by side as they cleaned the classrooms. Overcome with jealousy, she made a decision she was too entitled to detention. In any case, she wasn't going to let ugly girls steal her lover. During math class, Melinda threw a pencil at a teacher's back and was summoned to the principal's office, after which she was left with the detention that she had been seeking. She was going to spoil their party. That very evening at 5 p.m., Amanda and Shonda were quite surprised to see a smiling Melinda arrive, ready for a fight. She tried as best as she could to break up the pair, making her ex uncomfortable and coaxing Shonda, who was much younger and less experienced, by sweet-talking her. On Friday, their detention came to an end and Shonda and Amanda left together, leaving Melinda behind, boiling in anger. In the following weeks, Shonda and Amanda were in throes of high school romance. They spent their time writing each other little notes, often with spelling errors, that was scribbled in a childlike scrawl with hearts, doodles, and promises. Amanda seemed to hold a lot of power over her friend. She dominated her and Shonda was in total ecstasy. Here are a few excerpts from their many written exchanges which reveal the naivety of their feelings. Amanda, Shonda, I love you. Do you love me? I'll talk to you later. I love you, honey. Shonda, Amanda, don't be scared. I still love you. Heart and smiley face. Amanda, I love you. I love you. I love you. Signed, Amanda. 1991, 1992, 1993. Will you be there forever in my heart? Hot pierced by an arrow. Shonda, sweet ha ha ha. Amanda, you're crazy. Ha ha ha. In December 1991, shortly before the Christmas holidays, the couple went to a school dance. Seated hand in hand in the first row, they didn't notice that Melinda was right behind them. She turned around. Shonda met her rival's gaze. A dark stare hardened full resentment. She stared at her intensely as Shonda became frightened and squeezed Amanda's hands. Amanda looked back quizzically as she saw her downcast expression. It's her again. She won't leave us alone, she murmured. After she left the dance, Melinda, who in the meantime had been joined by three of her friends, began to call out Amanda quietly at first, but then increasingly violently. She sent her three minions to trap them in a corner while she pushed Shonda against the wall and started to threaten her. Soon, their screams caused a good many other students to gather around to watch the scene. So the boys began shouting obscenities and encouraged Melinda to start a fight. Melinda threatened to hit Shonda if she ever saw her hanging out with her ex. Shouts of hooray followed every word she spoke. Confused and frightened, Shonda tried to extricate herself from the situation in one piece, but the bellicose and vindictive Melinda would not give her a chance to escape easily. She shoved her into a locker and stared straight into her eyes and said, Listen up, you snout-nosed brat. This is my last warning. Amanda and I love each other, and no other pissant like you is going to spoil it, understood? Don't listen to her, Shonda. She's lying, Amanda shouted to her desperately. Huge sobs grew in Shonda's throat as she fought against her bride and her burning desire to cry and put on a show for everyone. As she stood in front of her, Melinda's mouth turned into an evil grin with only her front teeth showing. At that moment, the headmaster DiMeo's voice called out, Everybody, break it up! Go back to your classes! If you're finished for the day, go home! Fast! Faster than that! Loveless! I'll see you in my office!
The fight severely traumatized Shonda, who left for Kentucky for Christmas. When she returned from vacation, she learned that her mother had transferred her to a Catholic boarding school called Our Lady of Perpetual Help in New Albany in order to protect her from Melinda Loveless threats and to distance her from the toxic and problematic relationship with Amanda. Older Shonda was saddened by the idea of being apart from her girlfriend. She still obeyed, fearing hurting her mother, but especially of her father, if he ever found out about it. During her absence, Amanda continued to write to her and to call her once a week. Then, one day a nun answered and sternly told her that Shonda didn't want to hear from her anymore and that she should stop harassing her by phone if she didn't want to get into trouble with the police. It was around this time that Melinda found an opening to try to work things out with her ex and to convince her to get back to her. Amanda, perhaps out of spite, reluctantly got back together with her. Yet, not one knew just how far Melinda, who had spent all her life in an extremely violent home, was willing to go. She was born on October 28, 1975 in New Albany, the youngest of three girls from parents Larry and Marjorie Loveless. Her father was a former Vietnam War veteran who returned home completely shattered, but who nevertheless was able to rise to a high position within the local police. On several occasions, his wife and his daughter saw him dressed as a woman, wearing makeup and lingerie and appearing that way in the family living room. Melinda's parents both worked and earned decent salaries, which allowed the family to live in an affluent, white middle-class suburb. Larry Loveless was described as an irresponsible father and a particularly deviant and violent man. He never gave his wife a dime and all his money was spent on guns and in his bars. He was also into swinging, a habit that he also forced his wife to take part in against her will. In the early 80s, Marjorie made several suicide attempts, sometimes even in the presence of her daughters, but that did nothing to arouse her husband's sympathy. In fact, he even went so far as to loan her out and prostitute her to friends and colleagues for money and professional advancement. In this particularly unhealthy family chaos, the couple's three daughters were often left to fend for themselves, neglected by an often depressed, absentee mother. The parents of their elementary school friends recalled how Melinda and her older sisters didn't change their clothes very often, hardly ever bathed, and were always hungry. In the late 1980s, Larry and Marjorie joined a Baptist church in Louisville for a short time where they became respectively a preacher and a marriage counselor and a nurse in the community school. The couple would later be expelled from that same church when Larry was reported by a parishioner who would accuse him of trying to sexually assault her when she came to consult him on a personal matter. Larry was also a warrior, and as soon as his daughters entered puberty, he began spying on them in their bedrooms when they were changing or when they were with their friends. His wife as well as Melinda caught him spying in 1990 and violently attacked him with a knife. The couple divorced a short time later and Larry moved to Florida with the man with whom he started a relationship. From then, his daughters never heard from him again. In 1990, just after her father's departure for Florida, Melinda met Amanda at Hazelwood High School. They fell in love with one another and started going out together. Melinda came out to her mother in March in 1991 while the two were shopping. Marjorie was quite angry upon hearing the news but eventually came around to accept it. Melinda was described as a rowdy and wild student who liked starting fights. The tall brunette took great pride in her mane of curly hair that she always wore hanging down in the back.
Outside of Amanda, she was friends with three other girls who had also come from broken homes with parents who had psychological issues. It's important to meet them now because they will play a crucial role in the events that will soon unfold. First, there is Lori Tackett, tall, slender with a pale complexion, fine features, and short platinum blonde hair worn in the style of the early 90s. Mary Lauren Tackett was born in Madison, Indiana on October 5, 1974. Her mother was a member of the Pentecostal church and her father worked in a factory and had an extensive criminal record including two convictions for crimes in the early 1960s. During her childhood, Lori was sexually assaulted by a neighbor and then by her father. Her mother, who was a religious zealot, forbid her to do anything including wearing jeans. In fact, she even tried to strangle her once for that very reason. Social services had taken Lori out several times to place her in foster care and this lasted between the ages of 12 to 15, after which she went back to live in the family home. She was a sensitive teenager, rebellious, vengeful, undisciplined and feisty. She seemed like she was in constant conflict with her mother, whom she hated. Apart from that, Lori was fascinated by the occult and practiced using Ouija boards. She sometimes bragged to her friends about having been possessed by the spirit of a female vampire who lived in Bulgaria in the 17th century. Additionally, she regularly mutilated herself. In 1989, Lori, who was a lesbian, started a relationship with a girl from her high school and they both started to go out regularly. They used fake identification to buy themselves alcohol and Lori also started shoplifting anything she could get her hands on. Cigarettes, cakes, tampons, shampoos, toothbrush, and more. Throughout her adolescence, she almost had back-to-back -back stays at mental health facilities as a result of her self-harming behaviors. Additionally, she was diagnosed with multiple personality disorder and was taking several different kind of medications for depression. She quit high school in September 1991, left her parents' home and went to live periodically with friends. It was during this period that she met Melinda Loveless and the two of them quickly became friends. Next, there was Hope Rippey. She was born in Madison June 9, 1976. Her parents divorced in 1984 and she left to live with her mother in Michigan. Hope became friends with Laureen Tackett during childhood and she had even initiated her into the practice of self-harming. The third is Tawny Lawrence, who was born on February 14, 1976, into a working-class family and spent her childhood in Madison. Mistreated and possibly even raped by her older brother when she was eight years old by a teenager in the neighborhood, neither of them who would be ever charged for this offense. She was a tormented girl who also engaged in self-mutilation. She was a childhood friend of Hope Rippey and Lori Tackett. Melinda Loveless exerted great influence over the quartet and she quickly became the leader, with the three others serving merely as her underlyings. In early January 1992, Melinda Loveless learned that Shonda went home to her mother's house. She even monitored her coming and going, angered at the thought of seeing her with Amanda. But nothing happened. The sight of this girl who was little more than a child riding her bike with her hair all puffed up with hairspray infuriated her. Amanda's honest smile exasperates her more than ever. She needs to be taught a good lesson, otherwise this little bitch will always be in my way. Melinda thought to herself as she hid behind the wheel of her car parked outside the sheriff's house. From the beginning, Shonda had no idea that she was going to be drawn into this destructive romantic triangle. Maybe minimize Melinda's threats and her optimistic temper 
took over and she preferred to forget about the incident. And now, even though her forced separation for Amanda made her suffer, she no longer wanted to hear about it for fear of hurting her mother and causing even more problems. She was also aware that she risked losing contact with her father if he found out about her romance since he was a fervent Catholic. On January 10, 1992, a glacial cold swept over New Albany and the Almanac even predicted snowfall for early that evening. Stephen was making the trip to Indiana to see his daughter. He rented a small cottage near the Ohio River and he told her the plans for the evening, roasting marshmallows by the fireplace, drinking hot chocolate and watching a scary film. Poltergeist, Stephen had just come to pick his daughter and together they would drive back to the cottage. A glacial wind began to blow and chunks of freezing rain had already frozen much of the river. Shonda was fascinated by the wide expanse of forest and its black bare trees. She blew on her numb, red fingers and shoved them into the pockets of her pink fluorescent jacket. Her father was unloading the groceries from the trunk of the car. He told her to go ahead inside to get out of the cold. It was a charming, comfortable little cottage made of wood. Shonda noticed that there was already a fire blazing and crackling at the back of the main room. When Stephen entered and closed the door, his daughter flew into his arms to kiss him and thank him. Night soon fell bringing with the first flurries previously announced by the weather forecasters. Mel, your car is like ice. I'm freezing my ass off. Shut up, the heating is not working. How much longer are we going to stay here and wait? As long as it takes. Melinda was parked a few meters from the cottage. In the passenger seat, Hope Ripley sneered as she set off a firecracker. In the back seat, Lori Tackett complained that the cold was starting to get to her, and while only Tony Lawrence was only able to take it in stride and simply blew on the car's frozen window to draw a broken heart, she had just broken up with her latest girlfriend. On the previous evening, Melinda met up with the three other girls for a mission of the utmost importance, which involved going to Shonda's house to scare her, just to see her run away as she did before. But questions began to come up. What if one of her parents got involved and called the police? What would they do? Idiot, I've already thought about it. You just have to follow my instructions to the letter. Trust me. Knock, knock. Stephen was sleeping on the couch. In the end, Shonda didn't want to watch Poltergeist as they decided to watch a Disney film instead. I'll get it, she announced. In the doorway, she saw Lori Tackett's egg-shaped head beneath the mass of peroxide blonde hair. On the stairs below, she also noticed the two other girls from Melinda's gang, Tony and Hope, whom she despised just as much as she had always despised Melinda Loveless. What do you want, Lori? How did you know that I was here? Oh, I'm okay. Did anyone ever teach you how to say good evening? Good evening, Shonda said mockingly while trying to keep her voice down in order to not alert her father. Shonda, who are you talking to? asked Stephen from inside the house. No one, Papa. Just some friends paying a visit. Well, then invite them in. They're just leaving. But Lori didn't seem to want to move. Shonda didn't let her guard down, especially since the two others down below, numb with cold, continued to remain quiet and to give her dirty looks, whereas they usually prattled on out loud throughout the school's hallways. For Shonda, all three of them were the embodiment of white trash. I'm here on behalf of Amanda, said Lori in a smarmy tone. Amanda? Shonda blushed inadvertently, which made the blonde start to laugh. Love is great, isn't it? And something tells me that your dad doesn't know what's going on. Well, believe it or not, she wants to see you, and because she's not feeling well, 
and wasn't able to come here by car, she asked me to take you to her place. I'll be your driver for the evening, miss. I don't believe you for a second, said Shonda defensively. Lori opened her eyes and mouth wide in a show of astonishment. To give her request some credibility, she took out a photo of Amanda, which was dedicated to her, which read, I want to see you again. Shonda, I miss you so much. Wavering between the impulse to run to her girlfriend's house and the less attractive option of being driven by this vulgar and degenerate gang of girls, Shonda nevertheless reached a decision. She asked him to come back later in the evening when her father was sure to be fast asleep. It was agreed. The girls returned to the car where, in the meantime, Melinda had hidden under a big blanket. At around 11 p.m., Shonda warmly dressed, gently closed the door to her cottage, and tiptoed down the stairs. Fortunately, the snow absorbed the sound of her footsteps. Behind the wheel of the car, she saw Lori Tackett, who gave her a knowing wink. Shonda climbed into the back seat, next into Tani Lawrence, who turned her head away to avoid her gaze. She didn't notice a large blanket in the back where the seats had been folded down. The date, Lori announced in a high-pitched voice, was scheduled to take place at the Witch's Castle, where Amanda was already waiting for them. Witch's Castle? was in fact an old abandoned house that was often used as a makeshift hideaway for teens in the neighborhood looking for some privacy or a place to do drugs. Because of all the used syringes strewn about, the house was sometimes nicknamed the shot by those who frequented it. The trip to the hellhole was spent in a heavy and malignant silence. Lori briefly turned on the radio and then turned it off again. Suddenly springing from her hiding place, Melinda, armed with the enormous butcher's knife, immobilized Shonda from behind and placed a blade under her throat. Terrorized and caught off guard, the poor girl started to scream. Melinda tightened her relentless hold. If you yell one more time or make even the slightest movement, I'll cut you, you got it? At that point, Shonda eventually realized that there had never been any intention to take her to see her girlfriend, but rather to lead her to an ambush. Unable to open her mouth, having trouble breathing, she cried uncontrollably. At that one point, she even urinated on herself, which led to a slew of insults from the girls. You disgusting, you stink, you idiot. The nightmare began. The court had dragged her inside as they hit her in the ribs and slapped her. Lori Tackett bit her in the arm until it bled. The house was so secluded from everything that it was highly likely that anyone could hear them. For eight hours straight, Melinda Loveless, Lori Tackett, and Hope Rippy sexually assaulted and beat Shonda. Only Tani Lawrence held back, preferring not to take part in this horror. After being tortured for so long, Shonda was still alive, but no longer had the strength to fight off her attackers, and so she surrendered to their deadly impulses. One by one, the three of the girls broke bottles on her heads, burned her legs with cigarettes, and sprayed the inside of her mouth with glass-cleaning fluid. After eight hours of torture, she was still breathing, which made Melinda crazy with rage, and so she began kicking her harder and harder on the top of her skull. Blood squirted out, which made Melinda burst out laughing. Then the quartet of criminals dragged the bloodied and lifeless body of Shanda to the trunk of the car, where once again Melinda tried to slit her throat with the knife she brought, but it was blunt, so she started to stab her in the chest and thighs. Then she closed the trunk, climbed into the car, and headed for Lori Tackett's house, where all four came, changed clothes, and drank sodas. Alone in the trunk, Shonda hovering between life and death, but still found enough strength to begin to yell to the hopes that it would alert a potential passerby in the area. The girls came back a few minutes later, but this time it was only Melinda and Lori. 
They drove to a remote wooded area, took Shonda's body out of the trunk, and stabbed her again before sodomizing her one by one with the tire iron. In the early morning, they went off to another wooded area, where they eventually disposed of Shonda's corpse, which they wrapped in a blanket. The last thing Shonda said was, Mama. But they were still not finished. The two criminals then doused the corpse in gasoline and set it on fire before fleeing in order not to be caught by hunters or farmers. The next day, Melinda and Lori came back again to see if the fire had already destroyed all the evidence. They discovered that it had not, and so they repeated the process, pouring gasoline on the already charred corpse and throwing a match on it. But beyond the horror of their actions, the most disturbing thing about this incident was that the four girls met up at McDonald's to have breakfast together just after having burned Shonda's corpse. Their attitude was so disgusting that they actually even compared their breakfast made of bacon and sausages to the victim's corpse. That afternoon, Melinda Loveless called Amanda to brag her crimes, but Amanda didn't believe her. She thought it was just another of Melinda's bad jokes that only she was privy to. A few days later, poor Shonda's completely burnt corpse was found by Don Foley, a hunter from Louisville. He alerted the authorities. Even the most senior police officers found it difficult to look at the body. The face had been completely burned and was unrecognizable. There was a pool of dried blood under the skull. Other elements showed that the position of the body suggested that the victim had been violated, but her burnt hands made it impossible to take any fingerprints. The only remaining clue was a ring that had survived the fire with the inscription Hazelwood High School. Tony Lawrence, who had refused to participate in Shonda's massacre, eventually went to the police headquarters herself and confessed everything. That evening, it was Hope Ripley's turn to come forward and tell the sheriff what had happened. On January 14, 1992, the four murderers were arrested and handcuffed and the police investigation was underway. During their trial, the state of Indiana made the decision that the quartet would only be judged once they had reached the age of maturity. All four of them also agreed to a plea bargain with the state in order to avoid the death penalty. Perhaps the most shocking part of it all remains the photos taken during their arrest where Melinda Loveless and Tony Lawrence appeared old smiles for the camera. It was chilling. Tony Lawrence and Hope Rippey, who were considered less involved than the other two in the murder, each received a sentence between 20 and 50 years imprisonment. Currently, they have already been released. As for Melinda Loveless and Lori Tackett, they each were sentenced to 60 years in prison. Lori Tackett was released in 2015. In 2003, she appeared on a hit TV show, Dr. Phil, to talk about the circumstances leading up to the crime. In front of the cameras and Shonda's mother, Jacqueline, who was on the set, Tackett claimed that today I regret my actions and all the pain that they have caused you. I beg you, please forgive me. Jacqueline merely lowered her head and did not answer. In 2015, the state of Indiana tried to rehabilitate Melinda with the goal of her potential parole. She had been serving her sentence at Indiana Women's Prison since 1993 and was now commissioned by the Indiana Canine Assistant Network to train puppies to become helpers for blind patients and those with epilepsy. In September 2019, Melinda, now 43 years old, was released. In total, she spent 26 years behind bars. Stephen, Shonda's devout father, died at the age 53, following alcohol problems connected to the sordid murder of his daughter that he was never able to overcome. 
After the investigation, Amanda had to leave Indiana and change her name. Currently, there is no information available on her. The case profoundly shocked the United States and triggered an unprecedented media outcry. Author Aphrodite Jones published a book on the subject entitled Cruel Sacrifice, which was released in 1994. Shonda's murderer also exposed the deficiencies in the whole American social and educational system. Chief among these is the trivialization of guns and domestic violence, which have often been minimized and rarely reported. A similar case involving children occurred in 1990 in Liverpool, England, when little James Bugler, who was barely four years old, was kidnapped by two other little ten-year-old boys, Robert Thompson and John Venables, who tortured and savagely murdered him before abandoning his body on the train tracks. They were released upon reaching the age of majority and changed their names in order to escape the calls for vengeance that were so popular in England, where the case had upset so many people. Furthermore, the motives behind the crime had never been clearly established. We're at the end of our show for today, so feel free to listen to the other shows on the podcast and take five seconds to leave us a five-star rating on iTunes. It's really important to us. You can also subscribe to the next episodes and follow us on Facebook to suggest new ones. Thank you and see you soon. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high-end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style.